Let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Gracious Father God, please show us Christ through your word, that we would see the wonder of the salvation that he brings and the glory of his lordship in our lives. Please help me to speak your word faithfully um, and clearly and with love, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Just get the PowerPoint for the talk. Uh, a quick sort of welcome back also to the short family. Um, some of you who, uh, they're not here, sorry, but they've come back and are in Sydney in hotel quarantine. So for those of you who have prayed for the shorts to be able to leave West Africa, uh, they went through Istanbul, Tokyo, with some Olympic athletes on their plane and then flew to Sydney. All quite amazingly, God opened the door for them to be able to come back in a pandemic. So praise God for that. Thank you for your prayers. Uh, the Olympics ha has given us great stories. You get Emma McKeon, who today, after her 50-metre freestyle, is most likely going to become Australia's greatest Olympian with 10 medals to her name. And whenever she swims, it seems almost effortless to win. I'm sure it's not. But in contrast, you get Patrick Tiernan, who in his 10,000-metre race was the definition of perseverance. Uh, he was in the main bunch for most of the race, and then when the African runners took off for the finish, Tiernan had barely anything left in the tank. He stumbled and then collapsed on the track out of sheer exhaustion with the finish line in view. I would have just lay there on the track, but he willed himself to get up, take step after step until he crossed the line, and then he was rushed into a wheelchair, and he's fine. Patrick Tina finished in 19th place. It was the best time that he recorded this year. And the video of his finish has gone viral since then because it is pers perseverance personified. And we're going to see this morning that the Christian life is more like that than winning 10 medals. In the last two Sundays, we've seen that the compassion of Jesus compels his disciples to pray for God to raise workers for the harvest. But Jesus also prepares his disciples to go out and to proclaim the gospel because people need to hear the gospel. But now Jesus tells them that they will have to persevere in the face of opposition. So this morning, we're looking at the call of the king to persevere in particular, in our families. And we're going to be looking at three things from Matthew 10 today. Jesus divides, Jesus demands, and Jesus delivers. And before we look at that, it's helpful to remember the bigger picture of Matthew's gospel. You see, what's happening in Jesus' ministry is that Jesus, God's king, is bringing a kingdom that is crashing into another kingdom. Kingdoms are in conflict. Have a look at Matthew chapter 2. When the Magi told King Herod that the baby Jesus, the king, was born, Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why? Because here is a threat to the kingdom of man. Here is a threat to power. Herod, feeling very threatened by Jesus, who at the time was a toddler, 
How does Herod respond? We're told in Matthew 2, verse 13, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Kingdoms are in conflict. And the very young Jesus becomes a refugee because of this persecution as a foretaste of the suffering that will come for the followers of Jesus. So it's helpful that for those of us who are followers of Jesus, it's helpful to remember this, to adjust our expectations. Jesus is bringing a kingdom that is crashing into a kingdom that hates him. And as Jesus prepares his disciples to go on their mission to proclaim the gospel to Israel, they need to adjust their expectations that the life of living for Jesus and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus is going to be hard. Jesus uh, doesn't mince words. He uses a really graphic picture to describe just how hard it's going to be. In verse 16, I'm sending you like sheep among wolves. Remember who's the shepherd? Jesus, isn't he? He's the shepherd who cares for the harassed and helpless sheep. He seeks out the lost sheep. But now the shepherd is sending his sheep into real danger. Now that should show you just how important the gospel is and how important that this gospel goes out to people who need to hear it. There's real danger. And one of the least expected places of danger is your own family. Let's have a look at our first point. Jesus divides families. Verse 21, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And again in verse 34, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now note here, Jesus is not justifying violence. He's not saying that his kingdom will come through his followers picking up arms, inflicting violence on their enemies. In fact, later in Matthew's gospel, during his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus actually prevents his disciples from drawing their swords against their opponents. So what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that as a a result of following Jesus, His followers will have swords drawn against them. Family members will turn against the followers of Jesus. And what does it mean when Jesus talks about peace? Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, back in Matthew 5? So why is he saying here that he did not come to bring peace? Well, when we read the Bible, it's actually true that Jesus does bring peace. Peace between God and people. But often that comes at the price between peace between the followers of Jesus and other people. You see, to make peace with God, you actually have to break peace with people. To call people to repent 
to turn to Jesus, you first need to call them as sinners. You need to actually tell people that they're doing the wrong thing and that they deserve God's judgment. And that actually breaks peace, doesn't it? It's disconcerting to hear Jesus' words here about family. Parent turning against child, sibling against sibling, hated by your own family, violence, even death at the hands of those who are meant to love you. But Jesus' words are as true today as they were when he first said them. Here's a report a few weeks ago from the Barnabas Fund website. A Christian widow in Odisha State, India, has been forced to reconvert to her old religion by villagers who threatened to prevent her husband's funeral. The husband from the Koya tribal group, which largely practices a traditional animistic Indian religion, along with other family members, had professed faith in Christ and started to attend church with his wife. After his death, the Koya villagers forcibly took money from the widow, coerced her into rejoining their community, effectively forcing her to reconvert, and conducted her husband's funeral in the traditional non-Christian way. The widow told her pastor, Today I have no other way, and so accepted their custom, but I will not leave the Lord Jesus. I will come back again. The Christian woman, under tremendous pressure as well as grief from the loss of her husband, was also physically attacked by her husband's brother, who during a dispute over the situation attempted to beat her. Jesus divides families. But unlike, but like any good master, Jesus is not asking his servants to go something that he did not go through first. You see, Jesus was also misunderstood by his family. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Jesus' family thought he was nuts. And to be honest, if my older brother thought he was the Messiah, I would probably think he was nuts too. Now think honor, shame, culture. Okay, That's the culture of Jesus. Family is everything. What other people in your society think about your family's name is everything. And here's Jesus causing all this commotion, all these crowds. Of course, Jesus' family would want to put a stop to his antics because of the shame it would bring to their family name. And so they try. And now listen to what Jesus will say of his family in chapter 3, verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asks. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus relegates his own family, his flesh and blood family, to second place compared with the family of God. That's hard enough to hear in our culture, but in the honor, shame culture that Jesus lived in, incredibly offensive, shameful. Now, no, Jesus is not shoving it to his family, okay? 
as if his family don't mean anything to him. Jesus loved his family dearly. How do we know this? Let me show you from John 19. And note the context of these words. Jesus is dying on the cross. He's humiliated. He is naked. He is in agony. And here he is on the cross carrying out the responsibility of the oldest son to take care of his mother's future by having the disciple John look after her. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Followers of Jesus are to love their families with the love and compassion that Christ has, but don't expect that love to be reciprocated. If you follow Jesus, prepare to be misunderstood, prepare to be mocked, to be hated, to be kicked out of home, to be threatened, to be assaulted and even killed. This brings us to our first application, count the cost of following Jesus for yourself and for others. Yes, it's true that following Jesus brings incredible joy and lasting peace, but it is not all sunshine and flowers. We need to be real about this. It may cost you everything. And a genuine disciple of Jesus knows this. Jesus says this in verse 38, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me, my sake, will find it. Following Jesus means walking the path of the cross, being willing to die to self for Jesus. And that might mean dying like Jesus. You see, poor imitations of the gospel promise prosperity without suffering. But the real gospel promises real suffering for the sake of Jesus. Now, for many here in Australia, that that often means that we're just a little bit odd in our families. Maybe we're a bit strange in our values, a bit out of step with the rest of culture. We're, We're a bit antiquated. So we feel misunderstood and maybe we feel alone. But for others in our congregation, it means daily conflict. It means family members laughing at the things we believe. It means coming to church is a challenge that we negotiate with a spouse every week. Where being involved in Christian service is seen as an act of betrayal. Where teaching children about Jesus is completely off limits. And it means disappointing parents and bringing shame to them. And we also have brothers and sisters in our congregation who have lost everything to follow Jesus. Hated, physically threatened by their families, never being able to return to their countries of birth. My mother was the first believer in our family. That's her with my grandparents. At age 14 in Malaysia, my mum's school friend invited her to hear a visiting preacher. And when mum heard the gospel, she said it was as though Jesus himself was calling her. And so she gave her life to follow him. 
And my parents, my grandparents, opposed my mum's newfound faith in Jesus. You see, they worshipped idols and their ancestors. And my mum, their oldest daughter, had the responsibility of preparing the sacrifices that would be offered in the shrine in their house. But now they accused mum of bringing a foreign god into their house. They stopped her from getting baptised. They stopped her from going to church. But my mum's a pretty cunning sort of lady, okay? So she would dress in her school uniform as though something was on on the weekend and she'd sneak out and go to church anyway. My grandmother would throw out mum's Christian books and her Bible. And every time someone got sick at home, it was my mum's fault and her God. Jesus divides families. And for those of us who have come from loving Christian families, who've only known support in our faith in Jesus, we need to count the cost for others, don't we, who haven't had that blessing. For we are family. We need to mourn with those who mourn. We need to welcome them as though we were welcoming Jesus himself. And we need to stand with our brothers and sisters who grieve so much about their families. I'm sure not a day goes by that they don't grieve about their families. So ask them. Pray with them for their families. Grieve with them over what they've lost. And also, when we share the gospel with others, we also need to count the cost with others, don't we? We, Yes, we must talk about the wonderful gifts of the gospel, God's incredible love, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the Holy Spirit as a free gift from God, but we must not sugarcoat the cost. There is real suffering for following Jesus. Why does Jesus divide families? Well, that brings us to our second point, because Jesus demands loyalty. Verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Verse 37, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus demands loyalty in the lives of his followers. A loyalty that comes before that of your closest family member. A loyalty that you must be prepared to acknowledge before others in spite of the consequences. Because as Jesus warns, disloyalty in the end, means rejection before God in heaven for eternity. Now, these are strong words, aren't they? Words that are so very hard to comprehend in our culture. Because what we value here in the West, above all else, is autonomy, loyalty to self. And in cultures that value family more than anything else, Jesus is also countercultural because he says, I must come before family, I must come before self. Jeff Robinson puts it well when he writes, Jesus is telling his followers, if you would be a Christian, I must have it all. 
There will be rivals warring for supremacy over the throne of our hearts, but our love for King Jesus must defeat everyone. Just as a knight bows before his king, or a samurai before his master, we must bow before Jesus in undying loyalty. We're told in the Bible that all authority under heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, so he has the right to claim everything and everyone as his own. Jesus is Lord, isn't he? Yes, the gospel tells me that Jesus is Savior who gave his life for me, but the gospel also tells me that Jesus is Lord, the one who is worthy of my life's worship, adoration, and service. And the question that each and every person must engage with is this. Is Jesus my Lord? Isaac Watts, who who wrote that great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, puts it so well, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And I was thinking this week that even, even Jesus' own family members had to grapple with this question, will I acknowledge Jesus as Lord, even if it comes at a great cost? In Matthew 13, we learn the names of Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And, and Jesus also had sisters. He was from a big family, and we don't know the names of Jesus' sisters. But we're told in John 7 that during the ministry of Jesus, his brothers did not believe his claims to be Lord. I mean, here are the ones who spent the most time with him. They grew up with him, and they thought he was nuts. They didn't acknowledge him to be Lord, but it changed. In Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection of Jesus, we read that his brothers and Mary started to worship him as Lord. And not only that, we read in Galatians 1, James, the brother of Jesus, became one of the key apostles in the early church in Jerusalem. And James also became one of the early martyrs of the church when he was thrown from the temple tower in Jerusalem to his death. Why? For the sake of Jesus, his brother, as Lord. James, the brother of Jesus, came to worship Jesus as his saviour, his Lord. He dedicated himself to serving Jesus, even at the cost of his own life. Jesus demands loyalty. Here's another application. Love Jesus more than your family. Jesus comes before your husband. He comes before your wife. He comes before your children, your parents, your siblings. He must be the love of your life, a love that is even better than life itself. Don't live your life trying to win the approval of your family members. Live your life seeking to please the Lord Jesus. And if it comes down to a choice between Jesus and your family, choose Jesus. But here's the thing, right? Loving Jesus more than your family is actually better for your family. How does that work? 
The Apostle Peter writes this to Christian wives married to husbands who don't believe in Jesus. 1 Peter 3 verse 1, wives in the same way submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. And in the context of this letter back in chapter 2, Peter says that all Christians are to live out their relationships with other people for the sake of their Lord Jesus. And so Christian wives, for the sake of their Lord Jesus, are to submit to their husbands. And you see, the reason why, so that if their husbands don't believe the word of Jesus, they might actually be won over to Jesus. How? By the beautiful, Christ-like godliness of their wives. You see what's happening here? Christian wives are to be devoted in their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ, even over above the loyalty to their husbands. But what does that entail? It's actually submitting to their husbands. But not just satisfied with that in order to win their husbands over so that their husbands might know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Because that is the most loving result, isn't it, for their husbands? That's the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, isn't it? You lose your life to save it. You love Jesus more than your family, and you end up loving your family more than you did before. Uh, Once my mum at high school did really well on an exam at school, and my grandmother told her, that she had to go to the local temple and crawl before the idols to show her gratitude for the result. And my mum, feisty, okay, feisty, she said to my grandmother, it was my God who helped me get this result, not your God's. So my grandmother had to pay someone to do the crawling at the temple. One by one over the years, God has brought members of my family and my extended family to believe in Jesus. And after much prayer and invitation, in 1984, my grandmother came to follow Jesus. She started attending a Chinese Baptist church in Sydney, and the Jesus she once hated now became the Jesus she loved. I still remember hearing her sing, Jesus loves me, that children's song in her broken English when she used to look after us. And that same week in a church in Melbourne, my auntie took my grandfather to a, to a Chinese church in Box Hill and my grandfather also came to believe in Jesus. And my grandmother died Less than a year later, at age 59, and she went home to be with her Lord Jesus. You see, in the end, my mother's love of Jesus over the love of her parents was actually better for her parents. And it's been better for me and my children because we've grown up hearing the gospel. I know that for some of you listening to this, 
you are the only believer in your family. And it's hard, isn't it? We grieve with you. You feel alone. You feel misunderstood. You feel rejected. But how good it is for your family that Jesus has come into your life. For light has now entered your family and there is hope. And there's at least one person now praying for them. Jesus divides families. He demands loyalty. And lastly, Jesus delivers from our fear. Verse 22. Jesus makes a number of promises like the ones in these verses. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm will be saved. Verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, our fears are often concerned about the short term, aren't they? And if our life, our best life, is now, then we have a right to fear. But Jesus says our best life is yet to come. The Bible promises a coming judgment from God at the return of Christ when all must give account for the way that they have treated Jesus and others. And this judgment for those who oppose Christ means eternal destruction of both soul and body. But for those who have suffered for Christ, it means salvation. It means vindication. It means God wiping the tears from your eyes as we glory in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. Friends, the best is yet to come. And this eternal perspective helps us in the present. It helps us to realize that our Father in heaven is in control. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. God in all his sovereignty knows the intricate details of all things, even the things that don't seem particularly important or valuable, sparrows, hairs on heads. And so when you suffer opposition and persecution, when you're tempted to think that you are all alone in your family and you dread to think of how many years there is left of torment and struggle that lay ahead of you, Jesus says, it's okay. Your father's got this. You are not alone. He knows you. He is in control of your life, and he will see you through to the end. And how do we know this? We look to the cross of Christ. Where lost people in their sin are found by Jesus. And when people found in Jesus are willing to lose their lives for the sake of their Savior and for others. And the cross tells me that my suffering for Jesus is not meaningless because his suffering for me was not meaningless. And the cross tells me that even if this life is bleak, the resurrection life yet to come is going to be fantastic. I need not fear anymore. Here's the final application. Count the benefits. 
It's costly to follow Jesus, but it's worth it. Peter once said what all the disciples were thinking. He said to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus replied with these words in Mark 10, Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. We should count the benefits even in this life. You may have lost your blood family and Jesus replaces them with blood of Christ family. You will have brothers and sisters closer to you than those you share DNA with. You have a father in heaven who is a parent like no other parent, who you can cry out to, who is easier to please than your parents and whose love is more steadfast than your parents. And we can count the benefit in the life to come, the promise of eternal life with Jesus without fear, without crippling fear. My grandfather came to believe in Jesus because the preacher that night posed him the question, do you know where you will be after you die? The years of believing in his false idols, the years of believing superstition, years left him with fear. My grandfather could not answer the question. And so he gave his life to Jesus and he found the answer to that question, when I die, I will be with Jesus. And my grandfather lived with us and he uh, would wake up every morning, read the Bible and he'd kneel beside his window and he'd pray. Eventually he got dementia. For many years my mum and her sisters looked after him at home and he died at my mum's house ten years ago and boy it was a great day. It was a gift from God that day. It was a day of joy and peace. One of the pastors from his church came and he led us in uh, the Lord's Supper and a choir of ladies came from his church and sang hymns in Chinese. We prayed with my grandfather who was quite out of it at the time. And all seven of his children and his grandchildren and even his great-grandchildren were gathered together, something that had not happened in years. And then he died peacefully going home to be with the Lord Jesus. I think that day was a gift to my mum, who after years of perseverance saw that Jesus delivers. He demands, he divides, but he delivers. Let me pray. Gracious Father, We thank you for the honesty of Jesus. And we thank you for his example. That he suffered. That he was mocked and rejected and alienated. And he was killed. 
Gracious Father, help us to grapple with the grief of being alone in our families, of facing persecution and opposition. You promise that Jesus will divide. Help us to be loyal to Jesus above all else, that we would trust him, that we would thank him for giving his life for us, and that we would cling to him. Thank you that his promises are true, for he died and rose again, and one day will return to take us home. Help us to share a gospel that is real, that counts the cost and the benefits. We would pray that you would have mercy on the family members that we love, who are yet to know you. Save them and transform them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.